Welcome to the AlphaList podcast. I am your host, Toby. AlphaList is a closed community with over 300 CTOs that share their knowledge and experience in a Slack space and at events. With this podcast, we want to give our members and interested parties insight into the thoughts and ideas of top CTOs. If you're interested in becoming a member of the community, visit alphalist.com to find out more on how to apply. This episode is kindly supported by Fastly, the biggest challenger in the CDN market. Fastly is pushing ahead the technical boundaries and is, from my perspective, the best solution on the market. Fastly is known as one of the key drivers of the Edge Cloud movement. In one of the next podcasts, I will talk to Tyler McMullen, Fastly CTO, about WebAssembly and the Edge. Well-known customers of Fastly are Shopify, The New York Times, Reddit, GitHub, and many, many more. If you want to try it all with first-class support, just go to fastly.com slash alphalist. Welcome to the AlphaList podcast. Uh, my name is Toby and my guest today is a guy from Finland. He's often wearing a suit and long hair and his name is Mikko Hyponen. It's a really rare occasion. Um, I think he, I saw him three times um, in TED Talks. He spoke on many large conferences. It's really crazy, a crazy chance to have him here as a, as a guest um, and uh, talk about security from a CTO's perspective. Maybe, uh, Miko, um, you try to introduce yourself and uh, do me the favor. Well, thanks, Toby. And uh, thanks for having me. It's, it's, it's very nice to be a guest here. And I, I don't really know what to add. I'm just an old fart who spent all his life with computers and, in fact, most of my life with computer security. I started programming in the early 1980s with a Commodore 64. I sold my first commercial programs when I was 16 years old, and I've been doing security and, I guess, hacker hunting ever since I've been 21 And now I'm 50. So um, it's been a pretty wild ride. And it's been remarkable to follow how much the security industry has changed over 30 years that I've been following the security industry. But uh, I can tell you, I haven't had a boring day yet. And what was the most exciting day? <laughs> um, that's probably a hard thing to rank. I've... Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think the best feelings, best professional feelings I've had professionally are always about taking down some large uh, malware outbreaks or large botnets. Um, obviously, I work for a security company, so our main focus is try to protect our customers and clients, the ones who pay our salaries. However, When you are researching a, a, a large outbreak and you find a way to kill the whole malware, to, not just to protect your clients and customers, but to protect the whole world, that's the best feeling. So, for example, if there's a botnet which relies on the server to be operated and to replicate further and we're able to take down the server, 
we stop it all. The whole outbreak stops right there. The criminals will no longer make any money. No other persons or computers will get infected. And that's happened multiple times uh, over my career. And it's always the best feeling because you really feel like you've just saved the world. And that's just great. And what was the biggest case, the biggest example of that? Uh, most of the, the cases are, you know, botnet families, which I don't even remember anymore. Like they were big cases at the time, but uh, over the years we've handled so many of them that it's it's, it's hard to come up with a a a, a unique one. Um, one I can remember from the top of my head is so big, which was an email outbreak, which was huge at the time. But there's been dozens of these, and and and, and they are still coming and going even today. And how often have you been in touch with law enforcement and the FBI and uh, other official security agencies? It's quite remarkable how much law enforcement work in this security field has changed. Like when I started in the early 1990s, uh, that was still the time when there were plenty of countries around the world which didn't have laws on cybercrime at all. Um, so there were parts of the planet where it was perfectly legal to hack into computers because there was no laws which would prevent it. And for quite a while, we saw cases where attackers were rerouting their attacks on purpose through faraway countries, for example, in Africa, just so that they could make the work of law enforcement and the work of investigators much harder because they would have to be able to work together with law enforcement in all the countries which were involved. And in some of the countries, what the criminals did wasn't a crime. So, you know, it's it's taken a long time for law enforcement to, to really first get the laws in place or, or for the lawmakers to get the laws in place and then for law enforcement to build the know-how and the expertise to be able to fight these crimes. But I'm happy to tell you that today that mostly is the norm. Um, I've worked with law enforcement on all continents. I've done a lot of consulting for Europol and Interpol. And, and today, every country has the laws needed. Every country has the, the experts working for, uh, for, for police or law enforcement to fight these crimes. And, and I'm happy to tell that even places like Russia, where we had major problems working together with law enforcement, today actually is pretty active. They actually do hunt down online criminals in Russia. They actually do, do take them into court and they actually sentence them to jails. So, you know, overall, it's, it's, it's pretty good and it's still getting better. I guess you also have a lot of stories around, uh, let's say, first security becoming a business and then potentially like a secret to keep as a country and uh, something that is like a special force. And you saw uh, cyber wars or at least phases of cyber wars at the horizon. Would you say that really got more professional? Yeah, the, um, the work done by governments and um, defense organizations and militaries around cyber topics or cyber defense or cyber offense have really changed quickly over these years. Um, and cyber war or cyber weapons are really hard, hard terms to define. I guess cyber weapon is fairly easy to define as, as a weapon which is 
which is not kinetic, which doesn't involve physically destroying anything at all. But cyber war is really complex topic, and it's hard to really define what different persons mean by that. But I do believe that we have seen cyber war already happening because cyber is, is, is just a domain. It's a place where you can fight, just like land and sea and air and space are places or domains where you can fight wars. And if you look at a modern conflict, for example, Russia, uh, Russia-Ukraine war, which is underway even today, that's an example of a conflict which has been fought on land, on sea, in air, in space, and yes, also in cyberspace. And I don't think we'll ever see a, a, a war between two countries which would only be a cyber war, a war which would only be fought online. That's just not the way it works. Conflicts happen in different domains at the same time. And the vast majority of the work done by governments with offensive use of cyber power is not in waging war. It's much, much more normal to use offensively um, cyber weapons or cyber tools to spy. Um, and spying is not war. Spying is spying. Espionage is espionage. And it always happens. It happens during times of conflict, during times of war, but it also happens during times of deep peace. And it's happening right now. And spying is effectively collecting information. That's what it is. That's what it has always been. And information has changed Information used to be something which was printed on paper. So if you wanted to steal information, you had to go physically to the information so you could steal the papers or copy the papers or you know, photograph the information and take it with you. And of course, today, information is no longer physical. It's virtual. It's data. It's on our computers. It's in our networks, which means you don't have to go anywhere to launch a spying attack against another nation. And that's what we are seeing today. It's, it's, it's changed the work of spies all over the world. And which spies are doing the best job? Oh, that's a very easy question. It's the United States. If, if you look at where the cutting edge capabilities of um, offensive use of cyber power is, it's in USA. United States has spent more money They've had bigger budgets and they've been doing it longer than anyone else. It's, it's very clear. Um, when you look at the number two, like who's, who's the runner-up, who's closest to USA in technical skill and resources, I would, I would say it's Israel. And of course, Israel works very closely with USA in these topics. And then we get to Russia, to China, and, uh, and, and, and to other countries like Iran, North Korea, and Today, any country around the world, including Germany, is building not just cyber defense, but also cyber offense. And this is the hidden part of, um, of the arms race. Like if you think about traditional weapons, like nuclear missiles or aircraft carriers or fighter jets or tanks, very big part of the power of those traditional weapons 
is not in using the weapons. The power is in just having the weapons, maybe showing the weapons so, you, so that your enemy knows that you have those weapons. You don't have to use the weapons if your enemy knows that you have them. This is most visible or mo most obvious with nuclear weapons. There's only 11 countries on the planet which have nuclear weapons, and we all know which countries those are. And those are the countries that you don't want to go to war with because those countries have nuclear weapons. Now, with cyber weapons, we don't get that same effect at all. There is no deterrence power in cyber weapons because nobody knows what kind of weapons you have. Yes, we can list the most powerful countries in cyber like I just did, but that's very abstract. If you want to go to more concrete um, listing of, of, of exactly what countries can do, you don't really know. Like how many tanks do the Russians have? You can go to Wikipedia and it will give you the exact number. Um, what kind of cyber capabilities they have? We have no idea. I don't think even USA has any idea, really, what they could do. And that's what I call the fog of the cyber war. Just like fog of war prevents you from seeing what's really happening in cyber war, it's even worse because we don't have any idea of the cap capabilities of different countries. You named USA as the first and the per perfect example of prism um, out there in the story we all know a few years ago. How did that evolve? So would you say that anything changed? Um, prism and the Snowden leaks happened five years ago, a little over five years ago now. It's surprising how fast the time has passed, but it, it really was. Was it five years ago, four years ago? Well, time is flying when you're uh, in this field. These years have changed the world. Um, maybe not in the ways which were most obvious when we started learning about U.S. intelligence um, having a wholesale access to the data flows of the rest of the world. Um, I guess many people were expecting that, you know, the prism leaks would change the world so that users would start to steer away from US-based services. And that's not at all what's been happening during the years since PRISM. If anything, we are more reliant on US services today. We all use US clouds, we store our data um, in, in Azure or AWS or uh, Google Cloud Engine. We run operating systems made by Google, Apple, or Microsoft. This, the search engines we use all come from the United States. The social media we use come from the United States. So that hasn't changed. However, there's been other things which have changed. Five years ago, the vast majority of the websites you were using didn't have uh, encryption enabled by default. Today, vast majority of the websites you use do have it enabled by default. And one of the main reasons, the single biggest reason why this has happened is Snowden leaks. The fact that you know, everybody realized that information is being gathered at a massive scale and the, the, the way to fight it is encryption. Encryption works and we should be encrypting more of our data. And the most obvious example is that today almost every site is an HTTPS site. And that wasn't the case five years ago. Also Google heavily pushing for that and other companies heavily pushing for that, right? Sure. Um, and now Google is even downranking websites in the Google search index if they are not enabling, enabling SSL. Which is 
I guess, a good thing. Coming a bit closer to business, I mentioned the business with, with security and potentially ransomware. Um, mm -hmm. Could you give us a broad feeling how big that business is? Yeah, we, we're going through different eras or, or um, revolutions in, in the attacks we see. If you look at the longer term, we, we first started fighting attacks which were based on, on uh, physical distribution of media and then eventually network-based attacks. Attacks like you know, email worms, which would go around the world as users started using email in, in business uh, settings. Then we started seeing web worms, which would start infecting users using exploit kits over the web. So all you had to do to get infected on your Windows laptop was to access a website because you had Flash or Java embedded in your browser. So eventually we got rid of that. And now today we are fighting, the, the biggest single problem we're fighting today is ransomware, which mostly is being distributed over email. Um, and... Ransomware is a good example on how the attackers take the age-old principle of making money with online crime and apply it with today's technology. The, the criminals online have always made money by stealing information and then selling the information to the highest bidder. When, and what happened with ransomware is that they realized that, you know, in many cases, the highest bidder for the information is the original owner of the information. So you can steal information and then sell that information back to the organization or to the individual who you stole it from. That's effectively what ransomware is doing. And there's a couple of interesting things about ransomware. One is that ransomware gangs, and there's hundreds of these gangs, they only are able to operate if they have a good reputation. These are criminals which need a good reputation. If these gangs would have a reputation that they will infect your company, they will encrypt your network, and even if you pay them the ransom, they will not give you your files back. Nobody would pay the ransom. So these guys need a reputation that if you pay the ransom, it works. You will get your files back. And this is the reason why these gangs go to great lengths to make sure that if you pay the ransom, if your company pays the ransom, they will be able to recover the data. They even run support desks, including chat support and email support through the dark web, where they will help you to get your files back once you've paid the ransom. So at least these guys are trying to be honest criminals. Please rate us on ransomtrust.com, right? <laughs> yeah, five out of five, would recommend, thumbs up. Exactly, that's, that's the kind of reputation these guys uh, are looking for. The other interesting thing about ransomware is the, is the money-moving mechanisms. When ransomware problems started six, seven years ago, they were not yet using Bitcoin or Monero to, to get the ransom because they were not common enough. So they were using, using virtual credit cards or gift cards initially to uh, get the money, which is very hard. And it's very hard for them to launder them at, at the scale they need to launder them. So uh, virtual currencies, cryptocurrencies are, uh, of course, they by themselves are not bad. They are just a financial innovation, but of course, they're very useful to criminals. Just like cash isn't bad, but you know most of the real world drug trade is done in cash because it's, it's hard to trace. 
And uh, exactly in the same way, Bitcoin, Monero or Zcash are not bad, but they are very useful for online criminals. And that today, all of these ransom gangs move all of their money with that kind of mechanisms. And uh, as we are recording this, there's right now a case going on in Argentina with one of the largest telcos in place where ransomware gang is demanding seven and a half million US dollars from this large organization. And the payment needs to be done in Monero because the criminals don't trust the untrackability of Bitcoin enough. They want to use a more anonymous currency. And Monero actually is more anonymous and harder to trace than Bitcoin is. It's maybe a perfect time to also um, talk about the Twitter breach where Bitcoin was involved again, not Monero. Mm -hmm. sure. And uh, like you last week, we, we already had a recording planned and you had to you had to cancel or to move to this week because you uh, wanted to investigate the Twitter breach. Can you tell us a bit more? Is there anything secret that w the world doesn't yet know and you want to tell us? <laughs> yeah, Twitter has become a powerhouse. It's, it's, um, it's not the biggest social network By far, actually, even Snapchat has more users than Twitter and Instagram has like three times more users than Twitter. However, when you look at uh, powerful people and politicians and businessmen, um, Twitter is the way they get their communication out. Uh, Elon Musk and Bill Gates are perfect examples. And of course, they were also two of the accounts which were hacked by the Twitter hack of July 2020. Now... This was the biggest hack in Twitter's history. No doubt about it. No question about it. This was massive because the attackers were able to gain access to 130 accounts, um, verified, very powerful accounts, which had millions and millions of followers. Barack Obama was hacked and he has tens of millions of followers just by himself. Um, and the attackers didn't really think this true like if they were i mean and they were trying to make money this was not a question if they were trying to make money if they were trying to make money and and they were trying to make money in three different ways uh, we all know the bitcoin scams that they tweeted from bill gates and other other actors that was one of the mechanisms it's the old trick of send me bitcoins and i'll double your bitcoins which of course is always bullshit if someone wants to double your money but you first have to send the money it's always a scam But that wasn't the only thing they were trying to do. They were also using the good name of known cryptocurrency influencers uh, who were then sending direct messages or so private messages from the hacked accounts of these uh, uh, Twitter influencers to contact other people and, and propose to them business deals. Basically, things like we are opening up a private list for investing into cryptocurrencies. It's very limited. Uh, but you're, I'm inviting you in and you have to pay half a Bitcoin if you want to join. And this invitation comes from someone really famous and really trusted. Uh, so that, that's actually a good scam and, and people fell for that. So that's one of the mechanisms that the attackers were doing, which hasn't really been discussed publicly at all. And the third thing they were um, using to make money was that they were taking over Twitter accounts with very short and uh, memorable names, good handles, because these are something you, you can buy and sell uh, online. So very short Twitter nicknames are uh, something you can sell. And they tried taking over those as well. One of the 
accounts they tried taking over was Y, just Y, the one letter in, in Twitter. Another one was 50, five, zero, two numbers as a Twitter name. Both of those they hacked and stole and were trying to sell to someone else. And uh, I myself have my first name as my, as my Twitter handle. I'm Mikko on Twitter, but uh, I'm uh, happy to report to you nobody's tried stealing my account yet. <laughs> That's very good. And how much did they achieve? The victims who fell for the scam tried sending $550,000 to the attackers, so over half a million. However, um, the attackers only got $150,000 out of it. The rest of it, the 400000 which was being sent by the victims, was stopped by different Bitcoin exchanges. So many of the users who were sending Bitcoins to these scam wallets of Bill Gates or Elon Musk were not sending the money from their private wallets, which they controlled themselves. Instead, they were sending money from an exchange. So they have Bitcoin, but they don't actually control it themselves. They have it stored at an exchange like Coinbase. And Coinbase, Kraken, and other big sites immediately stopped outflowing bitcoins into these scam wallets to try to minimize the amount of money the scammers would wake, would would be able to make and they stopped four hundred thousand dollars in bitcoin before the criminals got it wow idiots they could have earned way more right yep they could have made much more by using something some other mechanisms and it's always a bad idea to give ideas to the other side but let me just you know point out the fact that if Bill Gates or Elon Musk would just mention on their Twitter account that, you know, I'm about to, or our company is about to buy or acquire another company, that would immediately change drastically the, the stock valuation of the company. Imagine Elon Musk saying that, you know, we're about to buy, I don't know, Google. That's maybe a bad example, but some, some small company, which... Uh, Mercedes. <laughs> yeah, well, even smaller. Let's say there's an electric car company called Workhorse, a U.S. company which is listed in, in, in uh, NASDAQ, which has a valuation of like a few hundred million dollars when, uh, when, when uh, Tesla is uh, valued at hundreds of billions. So if Tesla would announce they're about to buy Workhorse, Workhorse would double or triple in value immediately. And, and of course, the criminals would know this beforehand. They could buy options or uh, you know instruments where they could make much more than just double or triple. They could like you know make twenty times their money, and they would know beforehand that this would happen. But the criminals in the in the Twitter hack were not you know financial. Criminals. They were teenage kids or youngsters who were much more interested in Bitcoin or short usernames than options or uh, financial instruments. And maybe it was good that they were. It's also easier to track if you uh, invest quite a lot on the stock market, right? Yeah, it, if you want to be able to make money out of a scam like that, you have to know how to do it without getting caught. So yeah, it's 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 not maybe that easy to do, and that's maybe why they didn't try to do it. But they went for 
more anonymous mechanisms like cryptocurrencies. So everything in that breach was then uh, based on social factors, right? So as far as I know, they got in touch with the Twitter support um, and did social engineering purely. I mean, even the messages were social engineering. Yep. Is social engineering from your perspective um, the biggest threat also to other companies? Social engineering is very, very hard. Um, now, we can take a look at every single data breach, every single hack, every single data leak ever. And every single one of those has been either a technical problem or a human problem. Technical problems are things like security vulnerabilities in the systems we use. And, and human errors are, are like social engineering errors or users using the same password everywhere or things like that. And technical problems can be really hard to fix and really expensive to fix and really slow to fix. But at least we can fix them. At least we know how to fix them. But fixing humans is hard. There is no patch for human brains. There is nothing we can do to fix the way humans can be fooled or scammed. The only fix for humans we have is education. And as someone who has been trying to do user education for 25 years, I can tell you that education almost always fails. It doesn't matter how many times you tell the users not to double-click on every attachment and not to type in their password to every form that asks for it. And yet they will do it over and over again. It is a very hard problem to do. And the only fix we have is a hard solution. It, it's, it's a complex solution in itself because it's education. Maybe coming to an area where we have some concrete takeaways for CTOs or listeners. I think like also from my perspective, the amount of information um, and recommendations when it comes to security is simply overwhelming and exhausting. Even in a single area like cloud security, there are so many offerings, there are so many things you could do. There are a lot of risks uh, to focus on compliance, IAM, everything that you, like almost every area that you touch these days um, has potential security mm -hmm. issues and flaws um, and which need to individually t be tackled. So if I am now, let's say, a CTO of an SME, um, we're potentially publicly listed and I have, let's say, a tech team of 50 employees, where would you start? Let's say I gave a shit on security so far and I want to start somewhere. Uh, where would you start? Mm -hmm. What would be your recommendation? Well, the very, the very first thing a company should do when they start seriously thinking about their security is to just sit down and think through who are they worried about, really? Like, who would really attack them? Because the answer for this question is not universal. It's not the same answer for every organization. So think through questions like, who would like to steal from us? Who would like to hurt us? Who would like to hurt our organization? Who would like to make us look bad? Who would like to make us look like an idiot? Um, are we a target for foreign intelligence agencies? Do we have information which is being sought after by international spies? 
during times of conflict, during times of war, would we be, would our organization be considered as a legitimate target for military action? And for some organizations, the answers to these questions are yes. For others, they are no. And that narrows down to, to what you need to worry about. Because if you just go straight to vendors who are more than willing to, to sell you solutions, of course, they will talk to you about you know, APTs and nation states and foreign intelligence agencies which want to hack you, even if you are a local pizza joint. And if you are a local chain of restaurants, you don't really have to worry about Russian uh, GRU hackers hacking your networks. Why? Because you are a restaurant. If you are a military contractor, that's a different story. But, you know, doing your threat assessments right in the beginning will drastically narrow down your scope. So you can put your limited resources and limited budgets into the right place. And, and companies have surprising threats. Um, for example, you might be considered like an evil company by some kind of a activism group, but just based on what you do. Like you know, if you work with animal trade or you know oil or something which could be bad for the nature or you know human rights directly or indirectly, it could get you into a situation where a, uh, a hacktivist movement would be interested in using denial of service attacks to take down your website and things like that. But you first have to think this through. And the only party that can do this is yourself. This is not something you can outsource. I'm a big fan of working with partners for security and outsourcing the parts of your security work that you can't do by yourself. But this one, you can't really outsource. Like nobody knows your business as good as you. You know your risks. You know your enemies. You know who would like to hurt you. You know who would like to make you look bad. This work you have to do by yourself. And this is the first thing you do. Thanks a lot to our sponsor, The About You Cloud. The About You Cloud offers a full-stack e-commerce solution as a service that runs on exactly the same infrastructure as About You does. It is mobile-first, can act as headless system, event-driven, can be fully localized and is super integratable into existing solutions. Besides that, it is designed and developed by a really smart CTO and friend of mine, Sebastian Betts, who also did the first AlphaList podcast with me. About You has set up a task force for retailers and brands that want to be quick in the COVID situation. This task force will help you with the launch of your shop as well as with fulfillment, marketing, support and internationalization. Simply write to hello at aboutyou.com to be supported by this task force. And is then the second thing to find a proper... A consultant that can help me or hire a chief information security officer or how do I continue? Uh, I mean, if I, I think for the most companies, it's a very boring answer. Um, so it's just your competition that uh, wants to harm you potentially or maybe mm -hmm. some random hacker that finds a security hole in your software. Let's say I'm, I'm selling clothes online. Where would I, mm -hmm. where would I start? And I, yes, I have competition, but it's uh, not that my competition is very clever around security. Still, mm -hmm. I know that it is potentially something I should take care of um, if I have a certain size, I'm publicly listed. Sure. 
that's a good example. I mean, medium-sized companies selling clothes online, they don't have to worry about foreign intelligence agencies, don't have to worry about foreign militaries. They don't probably have to worry about hacktivist gangs either. Well, of course, if they outsource the clothes manufacturing to child labor in Pakistan, then maybe, yeah. So, But even that's something to think through. Um, it's unlikely they would have to worry about attacks from their competitors. Although we have seen examples of, we have seen cases where online sales organizations have bought denial of service attacks to shut down the websites of competing companies. So this actually has happened, but it's not very normal. Um, you might need to worry about competition spying on your designs. So that's something to take seriously. Depends on where you are in the world. And if you've seen this happen before, um, it's, it's something you do have to worry about. But most likely attacker going after your company would be someone who's interested in money. So if you sell clothes online, they can shut down your online store with a denial of service attack and demand a ransom um, in order to stop the attack. We see a lot of this happening. And, and uh, any store or any online system which hurts, the more the longer the site is down are prone to these kinds of attacks. It's pretty bad for online shops, but it's even worse for things like um, uh, online streaming of sporting events or online gambling for real-time events because those are very, very time-critical. If you want to bet on the outcome of Formula One Grand Prix, you can only do that on the day, day of the race. When the race has finished, it's too late. And if someone took down your website for the duration of the race, there's no point. Um, I mean, you've already lost all the income you could have been making from that. So it's, it, it depends on what you do. And for any company, definitely for a clothes retailer, there are then the typical financial weak points, like you have online sales, you're moving money through payment systems, you have payment terminals, you do revenue handling, you do uh, payroll. There's plenty of money moving around your organization. And of course, that's what criminals are interested in. And, and, and you do have to worry about just traditional banking trojans and things like business email compromise scams trying to steal money from you. Money continues to be the best motivator for people to do anything, and it's definitely the biggest motivator for online crime. So would you then, like if you know who could potentially attack you, would you then start with a consultant and then move to the next step? Or would you potentially, do you have a setup where you would say, I recommend you to look at the cloud first, uh, then enable logging everywhere. What would be like the, the, the best step or the best first step if I, if, I, if I know I didn't do anything about it? Where, where should I start then? Well, you have to have someone in charge. And for most organizations of significant size, that is a dedicated person, whether it's a chief security officer or chief information security officer, it, 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 it doesn't really matter. For smaller organizations, this could just be a role. So it, it, in, in the early days when companies started up and growing, um, It's just a role for one of the employees. But obviously, when companies get larger, it becomes a dedicated person who's only in charge of that and nothing else. And eventually, they will have their own teams. 
Um, but, but this is some. This is a great example of an area where you need leadership across the board. Information security affects all parts of the business. And information security is not a product. It's a process. So you need a process leader. You need someone with expertise in this area and who has the who has enough responsibility within the organization to make sure that the crucial things are taken care for. Today, Almost all organizations are software organizations. You can go to any company and, and, you know, like a clothing company, and they are a software company. There's definitely employees within that company which create code, whether that code is just PHP script for an online store or something more complicated, maybe their own app. It's still a software company. Um, and, and, and this is only going to grow in the future. So every company is a software company. You, you mentioned Mercedes or Volkswagen. Those companies are software companies, definitely. Like, what are cars today? Cars are data centers on four wheels. Everything is becoming virtual. Everything is being run by computers. And everything is, because of that fact, now potentially being targeted by attackers. And that is a risk scenario that you have to take into account. And one crucial part is that there has to be leadership support, like board-level support for cybersecurity. And that is a big challenge, because when you look at the typical member of the board for a uh, SME or larger company, these are, you know, white males in their late 60s. That's the typical stereotype of a board member, Right. And what's common for these kind of types is that um, they might be experts in business or sales or finance, but they are rarely expert in technology. And that means that they would probably just intuitively rather steer away from technical topics like cybersecurity. And today, that's not good enough. Today, cybersecurity is definitely a board-level topic, and it right now isn't getting the recognition it needs. Today, cybersecurity becomes a board-level topic only when a company gets hacked themselves or when something really big and visible happens and, and every news media is speaking about some outbreak or some major hack, and then maybe boards will for once invite a CISO to come over or maybe a CIO to come over to the board meeting and brief them. And that's not really good enough because if you look at the most likely risks to happen to an organization today, cyber risk is one of the biggest risks we face. But still, if such a such a topic, if such a breach happens to me, in a lot of cases, there's no real consequence, right? Um, like Especially if you look at the stock market. I mean, Twitter, for example, didn't crash, did it? Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. And that's actually something I, which I find very, very interesting. I, I did a study on this a couple of years ago. I tried finding examples of companies which went bankrupt after getting hacked. Um, there are examples of that, but only a handful. Vast, vast majority of companies recover. Even their stock valuation recovers fine, regardless of how bad it is. Um, pretty much exactly five years ago, we saw the Ashley Madison hack, which was this uh, dating website, which was completely hacked, and, and, and which was basically a cheating website. So it was really... Um, confidential information, which was stolen from Ashley Madison and made public online, which is like the worst thing which could happen 
to a site like this? Well, I just checked today. AshleyMadison.com is still up and running. It's running fine. So how badly do you have to get hacked for your company to fold? Where it turns out it has to be something which is really, really bad. Otherwise, companies do recover, which then, of course, creates the question that, okay, why should we care if even Global Payments or Sony Pictures or Twitter recovers from these major hacks? Why should we even care? Well, I'll tell you why. The companies will recover. Their stock value takes a beating, but even then it typically recovers. The ones who don't recover are the employees. CEOs get fired. CTOs get fired. CIOs get fired. CSOs get fired. That's why you should care. There's plenty of examples of people who no longer have a job because of these incidents. Because when the board wakes up to cybersecurity after their own company gets hacked, they have to find someone to blame. And typically that's the CTO. Sometimes it's the CEO. And that should be a motivator enough for your listeners to care about this. Okay, so I'm very motivated now. I'm the CTO of that company again. Um, yes. And I have, a like let's say, a very motivated team member, um, an engineer, software engineer, and I want, want him to become, let's say, the lightweight CISO in my organization. What, what advice can I give him? Where does he start typically? Does he, I don't know, post a challenge on HackerOne? Or where does he typically start? Um. I do like the idea of growing your own organization and training your own security people, but you're unlikely to succeed if you do it 100% organically. So you will want to bring in some outside expert, who, someone who's already seen these problems, who's already been fighting these problems in another organization. So it doesn't always mean that you bring in an outsider to be the CISO, um, but at least some members of your security team should have expertise outside of your organization as you're building the team. Um, another way of doing this is that you can outsource some of this work. The security team doesn't completely need to be in-house. You can use consulting companies to bring in the expertise and, and you can have an outside part-time CISO to get started, for example. Um, and, and once you have... Uh, the routines in place, then you can. Then it's much easier for you to grow the organization organically. And how do you see all those bug bounty programs like HackerOne and others? Not to mention too many brands. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I like them. I mean, we've been running a bug bounty for our company for years and years with great results. But bug bounties are hard work. It's not easy to run a bug bounty. And it's not the first thing you do when you start building up your security. You, you have to have a pretty mature organization and pretty good processes in place because once you open up your, your systems for outside attackers, when you, once you start rewarding bug bounties for bugs found in your systems, there will be plenty of bugs outsiders will find. And you your hands, the engineers... Uh, your engineer's hands will be filled with reports and they have to fix them all. They will find all kinds of problems from your systems. So you have to be ready to fix these uh, in timely manner. And, and uh, that's the reason why that's not where you start from. You first go through your systems internally. You first make sure you close down the, at least the basics like the 
OWASP top 10 from all of your internet-facing systems before you go to a public bounty because that's the first things they're going to find. So back bounties are great. I, I've been um, on both sides of back bounty. We've been running back bounty for our own products for years. I've been participating in back bounties for other products. For example, Twitter has paid me money for finding bugs in Twitter services. And, and, and it works like a charm. It's really great. And it's really rewarding for the hackers who, who find the bugs. And I guess my favorite property that bug bounties have brought to us is that um, I do a lot of work with young people. I, I go to different kind of conferences and hacker cons. I go to universities and I meet a lot of people who are just technically great, but are still very young and very early in their career. And they are just so eager to hack into somewhere. And they're just, you know, they want to just find a place to hack into, to just scratch the, the itch they are they have inside of them. And this used to be a hard problem, but today it's very easy. What I always tell to these clever young people who just want to hack somewhere is that, great, excellent, now go and hack Google, go and hack Apple, go and hack Tesla, go and hack Microsoft, because all of these are examples of companies who allow you to hack their systems. They invite you to hack their systems. And if you find a way in, you're not breaking the law. You're actually getting paid to do it because all of these companies run bug bounties. As long as you follow the rules, you're more than welcome to hack their systems. Same thing applies to us, F-Secure. I'm giving you, every listener, a permission right now. You have a permission to hack F-Secure software, to hack F-Secure sites and services. The only thing we ask from you is to follow our bug bounty policy when you do it, which, for example, then asks that if you find vulnerabilities, you tell us instead of telling someone else. Like, we don't want you to sell the bug on underground forum. We want you to sell the bug to us, but we will pay you money for it. And it's a win-win scenario. So, recapitulating, you would potentially not start with HackerOne straight away or others. You would potentially first try to do like a white box testing with, let's say, some agency that wants to help you at least find your SQL injections then, correct? Sure. I mean, first thing you do is you train your own coders with the basics and, and make sure your testers are not just looking for bugs, but also looking for vulnerabilities. Once you think you are, are mature enough, then you order a pen test from an outside service, and they will definitely find bugs from your systems because that's what they do. This is the kind of work we do, and we always find plenty of ways in when we are invited to do a pen test. Once you've done that a couple of times, then it's maybe you're ready enough to start doing pen tests yourself. You might have an internal team that does this. You might automate some parts of the pen test, but automated penetration tests, um, you know, they have very clear limits. Um, they are very cheap to do, but cheap is rarely good. And, and you will find the most obvious things. But once you are mature enough to do your own pen testing, then maybe the next step is to, to open up for public bug bounties. And that's, again, a huge step up because you will find plenty more bugs when you open it up to the whole world. 
the whole automated pen testing world, um, is there anything you could recommend, like not potentially automated pen testing, but maybe something you can integrate in your CI CD flow to find like the most obvious flaws that you could potentially have, like checked in credentials or stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's plenty of things you can you can do automatically. For example. A thing like, for example, trying to crack your user's passwords, which is a great example of the kind of hacker tools which are being used both by bad guys for cracking passwords and by good guys for cracking passwords. This enables you to find your users who are using weak or repeated passwords within your organization. And if you can use off-the-shelf open source cracking tools to crack users' passwords, well, so can the outsiders, so can the at hackers who gain access to your network and can steal the hashes of your users' passwords. So uh, that's a great example of the kind of automation which actually works. It's not really pen testing um, any anything else than just the passwords, but it would work, and that's something you can completely automate. Okay. Any more like open source, easy to use solutions um, or approaches you would you would take? Um, there's plenty of open source security projects I'd be happy to recommend. I've always been a big fan of open source myself. I mean, I'm coming from Finland, which is where Linus Torvalds of Linux fame is, is, is from. And very big part of the internet security platforms and internet stacks run on open source, like, you know, OpenSSH, OpenVPN, OpenSSL. These are all open source projects. Um, and they've all had their own share of problems as well because they've become so common and everybody uses them that if there's a security vulnerability in the security software themselves, then it affects pretty much every everybody. But if you go beyond the most obvious like plat security platforms like these, um, my other favorite open source Uh, security projects include things like Kali Linux, which is a pen test distribution for Linux, which is great, or the Snort IDS pro project, or, well, the Metasploit exploit framework is open source, Wireshark for packet capturing is open source, Nmap for scanning your ports is open source. You just go to GitHub and start looking for security projects and, and, and you find plenty of great examples. Okay, great. Thanks a lot. And do I have to build a budget for that? Like apart from open source, um, I guess there are there are costs arising. Um, mm -hmm. Well, open source and free software doesn't mean that it doesn't cost anything. There's always a cost for running projects. You have people running these things. And in the spirit of maintaining open source by all together, if you extensively use some open source, you should, dis, you, you, should um, you know, participate and give back to the project. If you can't give back in form of testing or submitting code, maybe you can support the project directly financially or by giving some manpower to it. So um, free software doesn't mean um, free money, not always. And generally, also around bug bounties, should I just save, I don't know, again, talking about that company size, just build a budget of, let's say, 10K per year or something like that? Or would you just recommend something like that? Or doesn't make sense? Um, well, if you want to get, you know, the level of hackers interested in your project that you want to get interested in your project, you have to give them meaningful rewards. So if you offer very small bug bounty rewards, pretty much nobody except complete beginners will look at your 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 
bounty at all. Um, and I, I guess it's just good idea to look at the size of bounties companies like yours are already giving out in the in in their own back bounty programs and just you know line up the level of your bounties based on them and then you can work from there once you got some experience on how well it works for you let's then assume i've been hacked uh, like my company has been hacked i have like some measures, but not too many. Where do I start then? So we run a bug bounty, everything's fine there, and maybe someone saw it and just didn't use or didn't apply the rules. What should I do? Well, you bring out the process and the books and plans you've done beforehand. Again, security is not a product, it's a process. So you should have a process for what to do when your company gets hacked. Um, and of course, that's wishful thinking. Most organizations don't have that, and they only they're improvising totally when when they realize that they've been hacked. Uh, the, the the bigger a company is, the more likely it is that they have, you know, experience in this beforehand, and they've built processes around it. But for many companies, it's it's the first time around, and it typically it also shows. Um, we have incident response teams, which are the teams that get the phone call when a company gets hacked and they want to ask for our help. And it's almost always the same story that we get the phone call and it's some company um, and a frantic phone call about, you know, we've just been hacked. Could you come around and help us right away? And then we, you know, send a team and we start investigating. And then we realize that, yeah, the company is hacked. But it wasn't hacked now. It was hacked a year ago or two years ago. Then what's happened now is that they, they just realized today that they've been hacked. But there's really no rush or, or no, no, um, no urgency because the hackers have been in the network for months already. And there's nothing that's going to change overnight. So it's, it's a very natural reaction to, to react with a... Uh, with, like it would be an overnight crisis when, in fact, the hackers could have been in the network for quite a while. But of course, if it's not just the hacker who's been in the network for months to collect information, the other extreme is a ransomware. Ransomware attackers are very visible um, because they will tell you that we are in your network because they will encrypt and stop your network. So that's a totally different story. No, the fact of the matter still is that in most cases, uh, companies will go to outside help. They will go call to companies and consulting uh, organizations who know how to handle these cases. And I, that's what I recommend as well. Very few companies are able to do this correctly by themselves. And it's not a bad idea to ask for an outside help. Okay. Yeah. Um, I guess that's a very good advice uh, because it's very hard to prioritize uh, if you didn't didn't think about it beforehand, right? Mm -hmm. um, to then then do everything you usually have to do beforehand. So we already spoke quite a while, and I think you had some very good good advices here. Do you have any more you want to want to end up with for modern CTOs? Um, well, one thing I wanted to mention about getting hacked is that we always recommend for companies as well as for individuals who, who've been targeted by a, uh, some kind of a ransomware or, or other targeted breach to file a report with the law enforcement, basically to call the cops. Um, and, and very typical reaction I hear when we recommend this or when I recommend this to, to CIOs or CISOs for companies that have been hacked is that, you know, 
why call the cops? Like, they're not going to find anyone. They're not going to catch the criminals. And, and even if they find the criminals, nothing's going to happen. They won't be able to bring them into justice. So, you know, and if I call the cops, I'm just risking that this becomes public somehow. And, and I understand that. I understand the, 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 that, that mentality. However, the reason why we always recommend to file a police report, even if nobody is found to take into court, is that this way these crimes enter into criminal statistics. And that's important as well, because law enforcement every year has to make decisions on how much of our resources do we go into fighting financial crime or cross-border crime or cyber crime. And of course, the way they make these decisions is that they look at statistics, like how big is this problem? And right now, cyber crime as a problem doesn't show up in statistics nearly as well as it should. And it doesn't show up in statistics in as big a problem as it really is because companies are not calling the cops. So it, it's, it's a much bigger problem than the cops ever see because it's not getting reported. And we should be doing much better work uh, in, in getting these uh, crimes into the hands of the law enforcement worldwide. Okay, I think that's a very good advice. Uh, like, especially in like my country, um, I would always have the feeling, okay, it doesn't make any sense because they wouldn't react. It would end on some pile of paper without ever being seen or treated. Mm -hmm. um, and, like, and that might be true, but they will end up in statistics, which means next year the law enforcement is going to have a bit bigger budgets to fight cybercrime because of the report you did. Thanks a lot. Then I have a closing question for you. So um, if your best shell was a time machine and we open it up now and type the command travel minus minus year 1990, the time you just slipped into FCQ, I would say, what would you whisper into young Miko's ears if you had the chance? Oh, that's a great question. Um, what would I tell a 20-year-old version of myself as an advice? What, what would I... What would I whisper into my own ear? Um, and I know what I would do. If I would go back into the time machine to, to see myself 30 years ago, I would, just, I would just watch myself for a while, maybe chuckle over about this clumsy 20-year-old, and then I would just return back to today without giving any advice. I wouldn't whisper anything to the ear of a 20-year-old version of myself because I'm happy where I am today. And I wouldn't risk being in where I am today for anything. And if I would change anything I've, I've done in my life, I'm, I, I might not be where I am today. And that's why I wouldn't give any advice to a 20-year-old version of myself. That's a very good answer, Miko. Thanks a lot. And Thank you very you much, soon. Tobias. Take care. Enjoy your day. Bye. Thanks again to our sponsors, Fastly and the About You Cloud. If you want to get first-class support by Fastly, just go to fastly.com slash alphalist. And if you want to launch your shop and get first-class support by About You, just write an email to hello at aboutyou.com to be supported by their task force.